I believe that a person should be a musical instrument that can play incredible music. And they find another person to play who can play incredible music, and together you can be a harmony. You can be a symphony. But sometimes if you're together for so long, we're together for seven years, if one person becomes the violin and one person becomes the bow and you forget how to make music to, you know, individually, you need some time apart to rediscover who you are. Your, your conditions never define you, they simply give you the opportunity to define yourself. And that is when you, you wake up to the realization that life is not a comfort-centric experience, but a growth-centric experience. Everything in nature grows and contributes or is taken out of the food chain, and we're no different. And welcome back to part two of this two-part series with Mr. Peter Sage. We pick up right where we left off. Peter and I start talking about how our minds take in information and how we can take control by learning skills such as speed reading and touch typing. In this part, Peter spends more time on the idea of evolution and growth and why it all comes down to love. And don't forget, this episode is brought to you by audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Peter Sage to receive a free copy of his book, The Inside Track. And sit back, relax, to watch part two of the amazing Peter Sage. Let's talk about that. It's a good subject. Why, why would someone want to listen versus read? Because we were never taught to read properly in school. We were taught, in fact, there's a part in the book where I teach one of the classes in Pentonville how to speed read. Because speed reading is a really great skill to develop, but it really isn't speed reading. It's normal reading. What we've been taught is super slow reading, which is why people read to go to sleep because their brain turns off. Or they read the same paragraph four times and still can't tell you what they just read. It, because you're engaging the brain in a way that is so dysfunctional. I'll demonstrate. When you go to school and you learn to read, you learn to read out loud. Now the reason for that is so that the teachers can validate that you're reading, because mm -hmm. they can't listen inside of your head. But what that sets up, it sets up a method of us telling ourselves the words, and even if we don't do it out loud, we, we what's called sub-vocalize. Okay. And so how most people then grow up reading is that they read the words, the eye sees the words, 
they then translate that into an audible sound in the head by pronouncing the words, saying the words to themselves, and then the meaning comes from the sound, the listening. Now that isn't how we're meant to work. That's not how we're wired. If I was to show you a picture of you know, a scene, let's say in the forest, or The Last Supper, or a, a Rembrandt, or a Picasso, or a, Mo Mo a Monet, or something, I was to hold it up for two seconds. And then you close your eyes. Mm -hmm. You could talk for 30 seconds about mm -hmm. that the picture. Detail. Because the eye is taking so much information so quickly. 80% of the brain's processing power, sensory processing power, is devoted to visual processing. Okay. Whereas you take a dog or a canine, 80% smell. Yeah, the olfactory sense. Sure. Uh, dogs see in black and white because that's irrelevant colors, irrelevant information visually for a dog. It would confuse it. They smell in color. Mm -hmm. We don't. We see in color because that's how we process our data stream predominantly. So if I was to take Mozart's symphony, one of them, and compress that into two seconds and let you listen to it, what would you hear? Noise. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Because we're not designed to listen in a compressed way. But visually, we can take information in so fast, so quickly, so much, that your brain is processing millions of bits of information per second just when you're driving half asleep. It's still calculating so much visually coming in. Okay. Yeah. Or dancing or, or what have you. So when we read, traditionally, here's what happens. The brain sees the, um, the words contrasted out of the page. It then searches for what that is as a sound, as a word. It recognizes the pattern. It then verbalizes, and it then gives the um, meaning to the sound. It's like a three-step process. Is it any wonder you fall asleep reading at night? So you wonder why people read when they get in bed to try to wind down, because it puts their brain to sleep, because their brain's bored. It's like having a Ferrari and pushing it uphill to the shops. <laughs> it's not how it's meant to be used. Right. Now, you learn to speed read, and it's a very different way of reading. You're not sub-vocalizing. Sub-vocalizing, because the problem with sub-vocalizing, Roger, is you can only ever read at the speed you can talk. Which even for a motor mouth like me is like 250 <laughs> words a minute. Right. But in 30 days of practicing speed reading for an hour a day, and there is a, uh, an awkwardness to get over the stop sub-vocalizing, because it's an inherent pattern. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, try stop, you know, drinking with the same hand at the bar. It's, it just takes pattern. It's just a pattern. So if you learn how to speed read, you should be reading anywhere from 600 to 1,000 words a minute with 80% comprehension and recall. Hmm. And your brain can do that without breaking a sweat hmm. if you know how to engage it. And that's just a, it's just a skill. Mm -hmm. And I say to people, if you, you, know, you want to learn three skills that will give you an ROI based upon the time it takes to learn that will blow anything away, one of them is speed reading. You learn to speed read and put the time in in 30 days. What I, the reason I started speed read, teaching speed reading in the prisons is because the teacher kept asking me in, in education, you know, how come you finish so quickly? Well, it's not because I'm smart. It's because I know how to read. Yeah. Most people read dysfunctionally. That's why podcasts, the auditory way, it doesn't take a lot of effort. And it's how people read anyway with their ears. People don't read with their eyes anymore. They read with their ears, as I've just demonstrated. So podcasts have become far more popular because it takes effort to read the way we're pushing the Ferrari uphill. Yeah. But if you were to train your brain to speed read, in a month from now, you could be 
reading at double with more comprehension and reading becomes enjoyable because the brain's involved. The brain will turn the book into a movie. You're actually feeling the emotion coming out. You're searching for a lot of the meaning that, you know, you get into what is the author trying to communicate. You turn your brain on and now you start recognizing patterns, not words. You can read lines, sentences, paragraphs at once because the brain can take that information in. It's trained. It's designed for it. And think about it. If I, if I was to draw, and, and people listening to this, just imagine for me. If I was to draw one line on a piece of paper, what would you see? One line. As a letter. I. I, right? Okay. And now, if I was to put a W on one side, or no, if, no, forget that. If I was to take that straight line and turn it into a W by adding yeah, a diagonal half line, another diagonal half line, and then another line, you don't see four lines anymore, do you? You see one letter, which mm -hmm. we call... W. W. Now, if I was to then put a, a H and a Y on the end of that, you don't see W anymore. What do you see? Why? <laughs> and now we've got multiple lines in different configuration, and you're not reading multiple lines. You're not even reading multiple letters. You're reading a word because the brain is trained to pick up that pattern. And that could be a 15-letter word. You still read it as fast. And that's why, because I've, I've seen these tests where y you may read a sentence or a paragraph, several of the letters are out of adjustment on purpose, yeah, but you're reading it. In. Right. Right. So, wow. But instead of just reading a word individually and then having to sub-vocalize it to give it meaning or recognize it or validate it, you can do the same for sentences. Paragraph. It makes sense. Right? Sure. You're just not trained to do it because, and, you know, depending on how much of a conspiracy theory you want to get into, uh, the original impetus for school was not to teach the masses how to read because you know a lot of the upper echelon didn't want the masses to be educated. Right. So let's teach them a slow way on how to read so they never really learn how to read. But training yourself to speed read will pay you back, you know, for every hour you invest in learning that will pay you back a thousand hours. The other two, if you're curious, one is um, so one is speed reading, the other is memory training. Okay. Spend your t yeah, invest in learning how to sharpen your memory. Most people can't remember 20 names in a row. Most people can't remember yeah, what they had for breakfast yesterday. Yeah, the memory's so poor. They have to take copious amounts of notes, and then they read them, yeah, sub-vocalize it, right. yeah, and then still can't remember them. Yeah. So train your memory. A good memory can be trained very easily. There's enough courses out there right now. And you spend a month where, to a point where someone says, oh, what's your phone number? And they reel it off, and you can reel it back to them backwards yeah, three months from now. That's, that's not having been born with a good memory. That's just the fact you have an untrained memory right now. That's all. Yeah, you're not born with you know, poor muscles. You know, that's why you're not an athlete. You, you, know, you have untrained muscles. That's why you're not an athlete. Yeah. And then the third one, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, is touch typing. We live in a world today where people don't use pens anymore. We use keyboards. And the amount of people I see still typing with two fingers, it's like tragic. Now, I don't know here in America, but in England, certainly. Oh, yeah, it's the same here. If you, for the amount of time it would take, again, half an hour a day for a month, if you're not typing at 60, 70 words a minute while looking at somebody and having a conversation, mm -hmm. just those three skills will transform your productivity and set you up to win in a way that most people will never get to because they just don't want to put the time in. And they don't take a lot to learn. It's cheap to learn. And you use those skills every single day. Well, thank you for passing that on. We, we always try to take something from every guest. Uh, we're obviously going to get a lot out of this episode, but those are three skills that everyone listening can can apply to their lives and, and improve their lives. Easy. I mean, why yeah. wouldn't you? Again, I, I don't want to learn something that isn't going to be that relevant day to day. 
And, you know, I don't want to learn how to cook a souffle because I don't eat souffles. Right. I don't want to you know, go and get a Michelin star level you know, cooking soup because I don't cook that much. <laughs> right. Right. Not not at that level. But reading, writing, typing, yeah, and memory. You tell me a day you don't use those. Yeah. So why not up the game 10x? Because you can 10x your current reading, memory, and, and typing in a way that doesn't take a lot. You don't need to go to law school for four years to learn how to do that. Yeah. Half an hour a day on each of those skills, and in 30 days, you blow the competition out of the water. You know, go figure. That's great. So as you know, I trained under Brian Rose uh, from London Real. You appeared on that show early on in his days. Um, it was a huge success. It was how I was introduced to you. And um, just curious, what are your thoughts? Why was that episode so successful? It's, uh, it certainly changed a lot of lives. And you know, I, I, I look at that sometimes, and I go in, we had no expectations. I didn't know who Brian was. Nobody really knew who London Real was. London Real at that time was virtually unheard of. Sure. You know, it was a struggling little podcast that Brian was working hard to try to put together. Yeah, and he had a couple of decent names. He had Dorian Yates, which was a big coup for him. And he had Tim Ferriss, but no one really saw the, the, the episode that much because you know, the, the subscriber base wasn't that big. Right. But he was committed, and, and he really wanted to put it together. And Brian originally uh, saw a small clip that somebody at one of my business schools had said, and says, yeah, he could be an interesting guest. And I'd been on a couple of podcasts, and you know, Brian got in touch with me because he recommended us. And I'm, I'm like, well... Yeah, you had to fly. I was living in Dubai. Like you either pay to fly me to London. I'm not going to fly in on my own expense to sit on some podcast. Oh, we don't pay for guests. Well, then we're never going to do it. Yeah. With respect, I mean, it's just you know, sure. it's transactional and wasn't wasn't a win-win. And I says, but look, if I'm ever in London and coming through, then fair enough. So then it turns out a few months later, I was going to Birmingham. I says, look, I'm flying into Birmingham as part of the you know, first class on Emirates. I get a, a limousine that'll take me to pretty much close to London. Why don't, and they're going to charge me something like 60 bucks to go the extra mile to London. Right, you can get me for 60 bucks. Come on, Brian. He's like, we don't pay for guests. Right, I'm like, I charge $10,000, $20,000 for a keynote. You know, I've been on stage with President Clinton, Branson, you know, people over. I, I give talks to 10,000 people, and this guy doesn't want to pay me 60 bucks to have an hour of my time. And I'm so, uh, there was a judgment there. So I'm like, listen. I'll split the difference. So we agreed, and we laughed about this afterwards. <laughs> right? we, we, we paid 30 bucks each. Right, to get me onto London Real. And I show up, and first thing he does is offer me a Bulletproof coffee, because Dave and Bulletproof were sponsoring yes. this event. I don't drink coffee. Yeah. Uh, this is before Dave sponsored my events. Um, and you know, we had a, a bit of a chat about the UFC, because you know, I'm a mixed martial arts fan, I'm a UFC fan, have been for you know, since about 2005. And he's a pleasant enough guy, great interviewer. And we just sat down and had this organic conversation in some you know, sort of home-based like studio. Didn't know me didn't know him, no expectations, and we just had this organic 90-minute conversation that nearly changed the world, and the, or the world of the people that watched it. Sure. And went viral, was a massive success, and virtually everybody that you spoke to for two years afterwards who said, how did you come across London Real? It was through that interview. Yeah. And I, I would love to see it back up, as you know. It's, um, uh, but yeah, it, why did it go? No expectations, and it was natural. Two guys having a chat. Yeah. Well, it was a great one, and uh, there were a few things that came out of that interview for me and, and my uh, inner circle of friends, actually, who introduced me to this, uh, one, one friend in particular, who uh, you mentioned a book called Super Beings. I was reading at the time. Little book. Uh, what does it have? Maybe 100 pages, if that, 180 to 100 pages? Yeah. 
um, that book changed my life. And this is going back, what, I want to say six, seven years ago? Was it, was it that long ago? 2013, I think. Yeah. So about, about yeah, yeah, no, 2012, 13, somewhere in there. Six, five, six years ago. Yeah. So um, what was it about that book that impacted you? We talked earlier about consciousness. And consciousness is quite a, a nebulous subject. Again, in the Newtonian paradigm, they reduce it to a byproduct of brain function, which it never is, has mm -hmm. been or will be, and they can never prove it, nor will they. But allowing them to do that protects their yeah, illusion of materialism. On the esoteric side, you know, consciousness is some nebulous, you know, in the ether, uh, and it's very rare that you can actually put a framework around it to give people practical relationship to understanding what consciousness is. Now, I'm a huge fan of, of David Hawkins and Power Versus Force, probably the most important book a person can read in their lifetime, um, other than the Inside Trank, obviously. That's right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, shameless plug. Yeah, available on all good on online bookstores now. It's okay. Um, but, uh, Super beings was another way of being able to calibrate levels of consciousness, because that's essentially what it did. It delineated the characteristics of people who were at more or higher levels of evolution in their journey of consciousness. And you heard me on that original London Real interview uh, talk about the four levels of consciousness that I break it down to to make it easy. You know, the to me victim mentality, the you know, by me achiever mentality, the through me being in more flow states, then as me being more sort of like oneness and spiritual unity. And so uh, there's characteristics and how you can slice and dice it. But the super beings really was the first time I'd seen somebody go and search out people at different levels of consciousness, analyze them, and write down what were their specific characteristics and what's it like to be at this level. Now we know this, we've read about it in books throughout human history. Yeah, the enlightened beings, the, you know, the Zen masters, through the, sure. the spiritual greats, the, you know, the gurus, the, you know, uh, all of those people have different characteristics, and none of them were born enlightened. You know, Buddha wasn't born enlightened. He was born Prince Siddhartha as a normal guy that had his own journey of emotional and spiritual maturity to go through mm -hmm. with his weight on the bar in his gym. So what are the stages? How can you recognize somebody at different levels? And therefore, what kind of framework do we have to identify where we are and aspire to move to the next level. And I love power versus force because it breaks it down a lot more in terms of a impersonal framework, whereas super beings makes it more of a personal framework. So, you know, that's really the contrast. And, you know, I love both books. And um, who introduced you to super beings? Do you remember? Yeah, it was a very good friend of mine called Glenn Moore. And uh, I love Glenn. Glenn was a, a maritime lawyer who decided to quit his legal profession and go and live on a commune. He's still there, up in Fintorn in Scotland. And just one of the most kind, loving, giving souls you'll ever meet. I remember when I was struggling one time in Canada, yeah, he lent me like 20 grand, just didn't even bat an eyelid, cut wow. me a check. Yeah, I paid him back with interest. <laughs> uh, which I, but Glenn I love. And Glenn interviewed me on, on he did a, a show um, many years ago. And I appeared on that. Uh, I forget what it was called, it's, it's on my website somewhere. Uh, or my, my YouTube channel. But yeah, Glenn was the one that introduced me to Super Being. Just like you, you know, you pick up on things like, oh, sure. if he, if, if I like this guy, and he, this guy's giving advice, not opinion, and he's recommending something that resonates with me, and there's a part of me that oh, just dials in on that, then, yeah, that's a sign. That's, that, you know, your signal to noise ratio is, you, you know, is, is dialed in. 
Most people have too much noise, too much static going on in their mind. Yes. So they don't listen to that inner voice, that, that quiet. You need to quiet the mind to be able to hear those messages. So, yeah, I went and picked it up, and I'm like, wow, it was a hard book to get hold of. It's an old book. It is, but it's readily available now okay. on Amazon. Yes, actually, I buy them in groups of 10, and I hand them out to people. Wow. Because that's how much it really affected me. And um, I, I did have a question for you on it, though. Uh, my friend read it first, and he said, look, this may be a little too deep. So just mm -hmm. kind of read it for what it's worth and take you know, from it what, what you can. Do you, do you agree with that? 100%. I okay. mean, the inside track, just using that as a reference, comes at you from so many different levels. Mm -hmm. But it's designed, the letters were designed to meet people where they were at. We spoke earlier about one of the spiritual greatest, like Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus spoke at, you know, calibration of 1,000 on Hawkins' map of consciousness. But if you're calibrating at 100, you can only hear from 100, which is why so many of his messages have been misinterpreted and, yeah, and, and you don't hear it from where it was actually being given. Right. You know, when I listened to George Zalecki when I was 18, I heard some really good stuff. But listening to his same message now, I would hear so much more sure. depth. Sure. And that's why it's good to go back to these things, right, and, and reread. Because a year later, two years later, you may be at a different place. You will be at a different place than when you were before. Of course. That's part of our journey of evolution. Sure. Unless we choose to hide from the workouts in the gym. And never go in. Right. And, uh, and, yeah. Stay where you are. There's a lot of, yeah emotional teenagers running around in adult bodies. Dr. James Hollis was another author and book. Sublime. Profound. Tell us about that and him and how that's impacted you. Hollis is one of the, I guess, strongest contemporaries of Jung. But his interpretation, I mean, he's, he's more of an academic, mm -hmm. which is great because the way he writes and his articulation and his eloquence uh, his verbalization of concepts and, and how he breaks them down and makes them real for you is just moving. But again, you could read Hollis and think, well, I didn't really get it. Uh, for me, the most profound books that he wrote, and he's, he's wrote several since London Real, and uh, when I, I mentioned him. But in fact, one of his new ones, I think, uh, Why Good People Do Bad Things, mm -hmm. which is a great way to separate a person from their behavior, uh, which some people can't do. Just because somebody does something bad doesn't they mean they're a bad person. Right, sure. Right, yeah. Oh, a leopard doesn't change its spots is, is a common comeback yeah. for that. Are you kidding me? Right. Right, you're saying that a, a leopard is born knowing how to hunt? No. Right. Right, it's, you know, it evolves. We learn. We learn from mistakes. In fact, a lot of time we learn far more from our mistakes than our non-mistakes. So levels of consciousness are primary. But The Middle Passage is a great book. Yes, that's the one that helped my friend tremendously. Yeah. Because it talks about what, midlife and... Finding and rediscovering who you are who, who now you are. in a different sense of identity, because now you could have a whole series of like, well, I'm not who I was in my 20s. Right. Now where am I? Now I'm starting to look over the back end of my, my life and I can see an end point or some level of mortality, which you know, in our 20s we're never associated to. Right. That's when it's invincible. You know, death's, you know, that's for old people. Yep. <laughs> right? It's true. You know, those that, you know, whose parachute doesn't open. <laughs> right. So... Uh, but when you get over that mark, sort of midlife, you know, 40, 50 years old, we start asking questions that we haven't asked before. And unless we have a framework to navigate that that's empowering, mm -hmm. we may end up choosing disempowering context or behaviors. So he offers a really empowering way of being able to look at navigating that level of maturity into the back half of life. The Eden Project. Yeah. Beautiful. How do we strip away the fantasy of thinking that relationships are about making me happy? 
Because if you think the purpose of a relationship is to make you happy, you're in Disneyland. Doesn't mean to say you can't be happy in a relationship. Important distinction. See, is the purpose of school to be happy? Learn. Yeah. The purpose of school is to provide an environment where you get to make choices that can lead to a better education under that you know, framework. Mm -hmm. And you can choose to you know, skip class, you know, party, get drunk, not show up on time, or you can choose to you know, devote yourself and study and, and apply. Mm -hmm. And those choices will likely have different consequences when it comes to your education. Right. But the purpose of school isn't to be happy. Does that mean to say you can't be happy in school? Not at all. No. Purpose of a relationship is not to be happy. It doesn't mean to say you can't be happy, but it's not its purpose. Mm. The purpose of a relationship is to essentially engender the, the ultimate crucible of personal growth because right now yeah, you're involved in, uh, with somebody who has the power that you're intimate with that has a far deeper power to wound you, a far deeper power to judge you, and you feel that judgment. And the purpose of a relationship is to attract somebody into your life that is there to challenge your disowned parts of who you are. To be able to grow through them by choosing love over fear or judgment in ever more challenging circumstances. Mm -hmm. But if you're going into a relationship thinking that you know, you're now responsible for my happiness, you're going to hit a pretty fat rumble strip pretty quick. Starts here. 100%. And your job is to show up as the best version of yourself without imposing judgment on somebody else. Without, you know, you can make requests. You can put the invitation out. You know, if somebody's a messy pig because they leave their underwear over the floor and that bugs you, you can invite them to pick it up. You don't get to judge them for being a messy pig if that's who they are, and you have total right to choose whether or not you want to live with a messy pig. But to sit there bitch and complain about it because they won't pick it up isn't gonna, you know, that, that's, not, that's not what it's about. But most people don't do that, right? Most people suffer in silence because they don't have the courage to actually embrace the uncertainty that would require them to step out of that environment and go find somebody that you know, is more in tune with where they are or attract the next person who's going to challenge them on their next level of growth. See, a lot of people end up in the same relationship with different people. Right. We, we, we see that pattern a lot. Well, go back to you know, Earth School. You know, if you are in grade seven and you fail grade seven, you've got to go back and resit the exam. Mm -hmm. Now, it'd be different questions, mm -hmm. different person in the relationship, but you're going to have the same lessons, you know, the same level of exam. Now, if you graduate you know, year seven and grade seven, what happens? You go to grade eight. What happens in grade eight? Are the questions easier or harder? Harder. They're meant to be. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the game. Sure. When does it stop? Doesn't. Doesn't. <laughs> Welcome to Earth School. Yeah, love it. And That's when great, you have Peter. that context for yeah. that life is a growth-centric experience, yes. now you can understand. Yes. You don't want to hide out, well, listen, I've, I've graduated grade seven. I don't want to go to grade eight because I'm, I'm comfortable answering these questions. And <laughs> it's important to tell our kids this so they realize that it, this, it, it doesn't end, no. whether you're 50 or, or 15. Not this lifetime, not the next lifetime, because if, if you graduate, and we're here to remember what I said earlier, evolution teaches us ultimately to become love. If you graduate and you suddenly become unconditional love at a level where you transcend duality, on Hawkins' map of consciousness, that would be 600. In the super beings level, that would be up in the upper echelons, where you, know, you have power now over being transcending the limitations of the computer game, yeah, and you can now start affecting stuff from the computer's perspective, not the limitate from the superset, not the subset. 
So once, if you were to graduate Earth School and suddenly become enlightened, Roger, there's no more need for you to be here, is there? <laughs> right. So expect a bus to come along and knock you out of the game. Yeah. Wow. Do I want to be enlightened? I'm kind of enjoying school, to be fair. <laughs> I've got no aspirations. I'm just trying to place one foot in front of the other the best way I can in the game, as everybody else is. Yeah. And if I suddenly become enlightened, then I'll expect a bus. But until then, I'm quite happy being here. Well said. Well said. Um, you teach about, you have courses on relationships. Mm -hmm. And um, I've heard some of your work. I love how you describe the masculine and the feminine and the differences in that, you know, we shouldn't force ourselves to try to, you know, change our partner or, um, you know, approach them in a way we feel that we could somehow, you know, change their mind. Correct. Can you talk about that? Well, a lot of it has to do with the dysfunctionally current model of relationships that almost every single person falls into the trap of. I'm going to choose my words carefully here, but at some point, you know, you're with somebody and you have proximity and you have chemistry and then, um, you know, you're either intimate or you're connected and, and we introduce that person at some point as, oh, here's my girlfriend, here's my boyfriend or whatever it is. And at that moment, there is the assumption that we are now in a relationship in the traditional sense and this kind of model clicks in. And when it clicks in, there is a whole lot of assumptions that automatically get put into that model. For example, you are now not allowed to do things that violate my rules or values. You must you know, conform to my model of a relationship. You're responsible for my happiness and I give you the power over to make me happy or unhappy. I mean, we could go on and on. Sure. And ultimately, if you put marriage around that, and I'm, you know, I have very little, and respect's the wrong word, I have very little time for marriage in the traditional sense because most people, the vast majority of people listening to this, and certainly those that just came up with any judgment over what I just said, have not done their history or homework or have any clue where marriage came from, why it exists, or what role it's meant to play. And I'll give a little bit of education here because it's important. And this isn't about believing anything that comes out of my mouth. It's about doing your own research. But essentially, the whole concept of marriage was designed for a very specific purpose. And it is not the purpose that we're now trying to use it for. It was designed, essentially, two and a half thousand years ago. It came out of the Greek city-states, uh, where the, the states were having a lot of successes of being a port, a trading port. And so a lot of the Phoenicians, the Mesopotamians, etc., were coming in and trading with the Greeks. And a lot of the sailors were hooking up with Greek women. Now, in those times, pure-blood citizenship was a very valued aspect of society. And, of course, this was diluting the pure-blood sure. citizenship. So they came up with the whole aspect of monogamy and you know, marriage, where you were now partnered with this person and you weren't allowed to go out anywhere else. It was a sense of forced control to protect the uh, integrity of the citizenship. Okay. And you know, a few hundred years later, hijacked by the church in order to have domain and dominion over who they should be able to draw alliances with. And it was for political alliances. Let's say we've got a village here and a village here, and we've been at war for centuries. Hate this village, that village hates that village. But now there's a third village over here that poses a threat. 
how do I unite against a common enemy? Well, the son of this tribe leader marries the daughter of that tribe leader, and now it brings union to the house, and now we can be stronger as a, a you know, it's resolved our conflicts because the families come together, so now we're bigger and we can protect ourselves from the third village. That's essentially you know, a simplistic version of what's gone on for centuries, okay. through the royal families, through you know, political alliances, etc. Or, you're a blacksmith, I'm a seamstress, and we need two incomes to be able to survive, and guess what? Is anything to do with feelings? Unconditional love? How good looking I am as a seamstress? Scary thought. No. <laughs> uh, no. Right. That wasn't the agenda. This is the important point to make. Marriage was not designed for unconditional love. What we've done over the last 120, 30 years is take a model that was not designed for that, but designed for forced control, yeah, a sense of personal ownership, a restrictive model for political alliances, economic survival, and superimposed the romanticism of unconditional love and the fairy tale Disney industry, which is alive, kicking, and takes Visa or MasterCard, <laughs> and put it over the top of that and then wonder why we can't make it work. Yeah. See, here's an important distinction. I don't see marriages work anywhere. I see some long-term relationships work that people falsely attribute to the concept of marriage. But let me ask you a question. And be open and honest. Absolutely. And people listening, answer it for yourselves. Yes. Right? Because there's always exceptions to the rule people like to point towards. Sure. And I do see long-term relationships. But as a percentage, as general feedback, how many people that you know that get married that 10 years down the line are happier or, or as happy on the day they walk down the aisle? As a percentage. Be honest. 50%. You kidding me? Ten years down the line, they're happier than when you come in. The highest figure I normally hear is three percent. Wow! Right, and again, the half the people you know married for ten years are as happy as they were when the, the day they got married. Yeah, no. But I, I, I honestly, I feel you know, I'm, I'm thinking about myself, and I, I, I want my next, my follow-up question to you was, I am happier today then you're on a path of personal growth and i'm i'm pretty sure that you're not ascribing a lot of the traditional yes, levels right. of control yeah. that a normal marriage would put but for the vast majority of people no, you're right. on that path roger yeah right so i can see where your figure comes from because it's a projection of where you're at yes but for most people they look yes. around yeah no. whether you look at hollywood whether you look at down the street yeah, divorces are at 50%. Yeah. I'm on about happy marriages whether you're more fulfilled more in love more yeah, uh, less stressed 10 years down the line. Now, okay, let's just pick a figure of 10%, just super high. That's like taking a revolver with 100 chambers, loading 90 of them, yep. and spinning the barrel. Yep. And these aren't average relationships we pick up in Denny's. These are the best of the best of the best we make a lifelong commitment to. So something isn't working, that's my point. Okay. And what isn't working is the fact that we've taken a model of control and kept that till death do us part. In sickness or in health? What, what are we saying here? If I become a different person, which I will, and five years from now, my truth is no longer to be with you, or your truth is no longer to be with me, no, no, no. You're going to compromise that truth and be unhappy for the next 30 years? I don't need your income as a blacksmith anymore. Yeah. I don't need to bond with you to unite a village to fight against another village anymore. That's not the game we're playing here. No. If my truth is to walk a different path, or yours is, I want to be able to honor that from a place of emotional maturity. 
And one of the challenges that, and again, the church was responsible for this in many ways, is that they, they mixed and they tied two agreements together that should have never been tied together, and that is cohabiting and co-parenting. Mm. Because if you now get marriage and you decide that your truth is no longer to be with someone, that could be your truth. What gets you from A to B sometimes doesn't get you from B to C. I don't need to be with you till I die if, it's, you know, if I'm not serving you in this marriage anymore. If I've become a person that isn't in line with being able to help you become the best version of yourself, why would you be with me? Why would I restrict you from doing that? Why would I not wish you well on the path and send you love? Unless I was coming from a model of control. Yes. But instead, <laughs> if uh, I'm, uh, we've got kids involved, I will stay together for the sake of the kids. Are you kidding me? Oh, I'm going to give my kids an opportunity to know what a loveless marriage is like because mm -hmm. I don't think they should be given the lesson of how to have courage to be able to mature uh, emotionally and divorce emotionally. See, the Egyptians knew how to co-parent uh, and do it different to cohabit. But if you don't know how to do that, then kids become a weapon, a political pawn in a divorce yeah. game. They suffer irrepressibly. You pick sides. Give me a break. So unhealthy. So knowing that, again, does that mean I'm never going to get married? No, but I'm not going to get married on the terms of you know, some 2,000-year-old out outdated model that's designed for repression and control than it is for unconditional love and happiness. Have, has your position changed? Because you said you were engaged prior. Has your mindset position changed since then? Uh, yes, I, I'm no longer engaged. I'm actually currently single. And classic example. Myself and my, my, my partner, Thea, we have a, um, we spoke yesterday. Yeah, we're best friends. I'm thrilled at the journey of where she's going and sometimes, yeah, and, and this was our conversation, I believe that a person should be a musical instrument that can play incredible music and they find another person to play who can play incredible music and together you can be a harmony. You can be a symphony. But sometimes if you're together for so long, we're together for seven years, if one person becomes the violin and one person becomes the bow and you forget how to make music to, individually, you need some time apart to rediscover who you are in order to you know, know yourself. And sometimes you live in a house for a long time and there's nothing wrong with the house, but it's time to move house. And so we've come to the um, arrangement recently that you know, we needed to be able to rediscover who we are on our own in order to see if that then recycles back sure. to have a stronger foundation to put it on. And if not, then we come from love, not judgment. Come from a place of, of not wanting to control somebody. I've got no right. If she goes and meets her soulmate or her next soulmate tomorrow and falls madly in love with somebody that's incredible of her growth, why would I not want to do anything other than send her the best and unconditional love? Unless I, I felt some level of you know, uh, emotional immaturity that that would make me less of a man or compete or whatever. Give me a break. Yeah. So no, I'm, uh, I'm currently single and, and just as happy. And yeah, there's a transition. Of course, you're dealing with human emotion. Sure. But I've got no problem whatsoever in order to be able to walk my shift. My truth, and my truth is to walk a separate path of my own growth outside of that proximity, then of course I'll do that. Of course, of course I'd, I'd, I'd want to wish that for her. And if we can't do it without being best friends, and if there's children involved, we would make you know, a, a level of we wouldn't attract the next person that would judge us for me not being in that child's life for the next 18 years as a, as, as a parent until they were able to, to, it just wouldn't happen. Right. Make sense? It does. Yeah, and I, you know, again, I, I look at my situation, is that 
the anomaly. I mean, you know, we've been married for 23 years. Um, and I, yeah, and I feel our marriage, our love for each other is gross, you know, it grows. And for her to allow me to do what I do, and I support her in what she does. And we have two beautiful children that we equally, you know, I, I feel very blessed and I feel a lot of gratitude. I, I wish that for more people. Me too. Me yeah. too. And again, I, we don't want to get wrapped around the axle on labels here. Right. You know, as I, start, I see a lot of long-term relationships work, but I see people falsely attribute that to the model of marriage. Yes. And it doesn't. Right. Because if you'd been trying to control her rather than, as I say, she allows me and supports me in doing what I do. Right. Right. If you were trying to control her and if, if you felt that she was responsible for making you happy and if you, know, you guys had a, a sense of you know, being able to restrict each other's growth rather than support each other's growth, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be as happy now as you were you know, 20 odd years ago. No, no doubt about that, 100%. Okay, well, let's move on to a couple of other topics. And um, you mentioned Dan Pena earlier. Mm. And uh, he's been a big part of, of London Reel's growth. You introduced Brian Rose to Dan Pena. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious if, if you maintain a relationship with Dan Pena. It seems the, 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 the I don't know, you're from his message to your message, I see two extremes. So I, I, that in itself gives me just curiosity and sure the whole relationship. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I have often wondered, have I gone from his you know, Hall of Fame to his Hall of Shame <laughs> yeah, following what happened in, in Pentonville? And when I came out, I sent down a copy of the book uh, with a beautiful inscription. Uh, I actually even um, uh, wanted to send Brian Rose a, a copy of the book. I had a, a special copy printed for Brian with a really nice inscription saying how proud I was, what he'd done with the channel and move it forward. And uh, I wanted to send it to his new studio. And I, um, I sent a message asking for the address of the new studio because I wanted to send Brian the book. And, Unfortunately, I got the message back that he wasn't interested. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I've still got that book for Brian. Anyone knows the studio address? Let me know, and I'll, I'll post. I'll it. give it to you. I'll, I'll post <laughs> it to him. Uh, but um, uh, but for Dan, I sent him a copy of the book, and uh, I've not really had much contact with Dan uh, since I came out. He's doing his thing. I've recently sent him an email because one of the things I didn't mention is that I've just signed a movie deal for the Inside Track. <laughs> wow! Congratulations. Uh, everything that happened, and yeah, really excited. Uh, Award-winning production firm, and. There's so many threads that could go through. It's going to be like a docudrama. And I'm very keen to really play a very active role. They actually want me to play me in the, in the documentary, obviously. But the, there's so many threads. You can have the thread of, you know, guy top of his game loses everything, bounces back. You've got, you know, big corporate bully boy picks on the little guy. You've got the state of the prisons and how bad it is. You've got, you know, high-level personal growth and how to use it in situations sure. that, you know, it, there's so many threads. It, it, it makes for an incredible, you know, movie when, when, when this is done. Uh, I'm very excited about it. But the kind of scenes that we really want to put in here show some of the mentors that have impacted me. That, for example, I'm, I'm meditating on my prison bed and there's a flashback to a scene where, you know, I'm, I'm listening to Dan and Dan gives me a, a lesson uh, or I take some notes or, or we're having a conversation and then I go out you know, into the wing when they let us out and there's, a, there's a, a situation that requires that level of, of action where I can draw on the lesson, show people how to use it for real. And, and so I, I recently sent Dan an email saying, hey, you know, I'd love you to be part of this if you, if you want to come in because he's been one of my mentors and sure. he has a lot of wisdom and uh, obviously George, I'd love George to be a part of it. I was, I was talking to him about it yesterday. 
Uh, but there's you know, any sort of coaches or speakers or et cetera who have a message, this is, this is a project they could be involved in mm -hmm. because, again, it's not about me. It's, it's about how do you really give an empowering message in different circumstances. So hopefully Dan will, uh, will, will pick up on that and we'll see him in the uh, Absolutely, in the I hope so. And look, the one thing I think about, Peter, as you're talking is non-judgment. Okay, so we hear, we talk, we hear about non-judgment all the time. Are people practicing it? So, and I don't want to bash anyone. I just want to, you know, state some facts here that I've never met you. Um, I know your story from what I've heard. But whether it's you or, or my interview next week, I don't want to judge anything that may have happened in your past, mm -hmm. good or bad. Or it doesn't, it's not my business. So what is your take now that you've gone through something like this, okay, where you actually went to prison, you, you had a great mindset, but no matter what you do or no matter what you say, people are going to judge. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? How do, and and I, again, I'm thinking about our viewers, about our listeners that are judged every single day, um, but would love to hear your inside thoughts on that so we could help others. Pretty simple. Everybody else's opinion of me is none of my business. And now the human condition is going to judge. It's just part of the human condition. So we can you know, craft this utopian construct where nobody has judgment. And then, yeah, guess what? We graduate, expect a bus. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's not going to happen. But you, catching yourself and, and seeing where that leads um, is, is, is good self-practice. So, yeah. We judge automatically a lot of the time because it's conditioned. But catching ourselves and then sort of asking better questions is a great skill to have. So I, I try not to judge because I see you know, my perspective, and again, this isn't from a hierarchical level at all because it's not about significance, not about ego. It's, I, you know, I, I work on that as much as I can every day. Of course, I still have my own lessons to, to learn, hopefully. But if you have a parent and they have a three-year-old, and that three-year-old says he wants an ice cream. And the parent's like, well, you had an ice cream an hour ago. Dinner's in 20 minutes, and you can't have another ice cream. And that kid then throws a tantrum, starts stamping its feet, and starts screaming hate for the parent. Does the parent book into counseling thinking that their kid now hates them? No. No. No, they understand it's just a natural expression of the emotional maturity level of a three-year-old that wants an ice cream. So you don't look at it with judgment. Oh, I can't believe my three-year-old is calling out. Well, that's what a three-year-old does. Okay, why do alcoholics drink? Because that's what alcoholics do. Why would you judge somebody for doing what they do if that's who they are? Yeah, so for me, if somebody, and, and I write about this in, in, in chapter six, there was a, you know, a, a series of articles that you know, some reporter that got a bee in his bonnet you know, started writing when I went in. It was unopposed. It was complete character assassination. And I actually called him when I came out. I'm like, well, I, have I slept with this guy's wife? I mean, it, it was literally venom, And most of it completely one side. I mean, classic journalism. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I've, I've, I've slagged the media off for so many years, it's about time they probably had to go back. Yeah. But I, I said, you know, what, what caused you to want to have a go at me? I, I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, didn't know me. Uh, he was an IT reporter, and he saw Sage versus you know, the IT company I was with and thought it was Sage Software. That's why he showed up and then just decided to go off on, on what he says. And here's my point. It doesn't take courage to criticize. 
doesn't take courage to point fingers. It doesn't take courage to hide behind a social media post right, or be a keyboard warrior. It takes courage, which is the pathway between power and force. And if you want to graduate a life of force, which is exhausting, into by me, and elevate your consciousness into a level of through me, which is more power, then courage is part of the gateway. Don't mistake courage for bravado. That's pride. Yeah, it could be courage to say sorry. It could be courage to mend a broken relationship. It could be courage to reevaluate something you said and say that wasn't actually accurate. That was more my projection. That was my ego. So, you know, having a a mindset where I don't judge this guy, I don't judge other people. Right? They're being programmed through agendas that they're just unconsciously unaware of. Mm-hmm. And the biggest lesson here is that. Way more often, the people who criticize, it is a projection of their own state of mind that tells you far more about the criticizer than the object of their criticism. There's two ways to have the tallest building in town. Tony Robbins taught me this. One way is to work on how high you can build your building. In other words, to be the example and the invitation. But it's far easier, if you don't want to put the work in, to try to tear down everybody else's building that Mm. looks taller than yours. Now, do you judge people for that? They're on the journey. I was a complete asshole in my 20s. Until, you know, uh, I was fear-driven. I was total insecurity-driven. I was trying to prove the world I was good enough by buying another Ferrari, and I you know, think that would make me successful. You know, I was controlling and belittling of my staff because I was so scared of letting go of control in case it went down, and then you know, it would look bad on me. Well, I've been there. I'm not holier than thou. I've, I'm, and I'm so grateful that I've, I've accelerated a little bit past that. So I can come from a place that's slightly more emotionally mature, thanks to the journey I've gone on for the grace of God, where I don't get to judge people who were there because I was there. If somebody's a sapling and I'm a little bit bigger tree, if I'm 20 years old and they're 10 years old, what do I do? Look at that stupid 10-year-old. Doesn't know anything. No. Doesn't work. Are people going to come from judgment? Of course they are. It's a projection of their own model of the world. Why would I even lose one second sleep over it? Wow. You mentioned Tony Robbins a couple times, mm-hmm. and you were certified, right? To I was, yeah, I'm very, very blessed. I spent 15 years traveling around the world with Tony um, as one of his you know, sort of like main trainers. Uh, in fact, 2002, I became the youngest trainer for Tony. Wow, so uh, very, very, very blessed about. And yeah, I'm, I owe Tony a lot as a mentor in terms of you know, vicariously learning a lot from him, and obviously being around the proximity of Tony. Yeah, you probably see him on Netflix on you know, I'm Not Your Guru. Uh, that's at a Date with Destiny seminar. Uh, I've probably, I don't know, probably 15 Date with Destiny, something like that. So, you know, my, my job as a trainer is to help people in the room get their outcomes. Tony's job is to create a framework to facilitate that and make them so emotionally uncomfortable that they're, they're forced out of their comfort zone to change. Mm. The trainers then kind of come in to mop up the mess in, you know, in a, and Tony would be the first to say that. That's <laughs> right. kind of our job. You know, I'm not belittling him. Um, so yes, I've I'm, I've learned a huge amount from Tony, a lot, especially around the intervention side, and some of the stuff that I put in the inside track yes. about how I delineate and navigate human behavior, and you know how do you stop a suicide in ten minutes from a guy that's about to kill himself, and you know not in the moment because you can change anything in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, my enthusiasm sitting next to somebody who changed there in the moment, <laughs> right? But I'm on about when he goes back to his cell and you know is facing the same fears and 
thought patterns that you know, led to him wanting to kill himself in the first. How do you permanently change something right. like that? So that was my stock in trade for Tony for a long time. My, my job in seminars was to conduct strategic interventions on drug you know, users, on homeless, on suicide, on abuse traces, on people carrying 20 years of trauma. How do you get rid of that? And not by sitting on a couch for an hour a day for the next you know, five years to make some therapist Mercedes payment that's using an outdated model that isn't effective. But how do you get rid of it now, mm -hmm. permanently? How do you shift? And so, yeah, I owe Tony a huge amount for being able to build the muscle of the skill set for that that allowed me to change so many lives in prison. How did he select you to be part of his team? Well, the, the process in that environment is, uh, is quite uh, unique and stringent. I, I went through all of Tony's programs, and then I was asked to, to go through his leadership training. And then the trainers for Tony are probably one of the most and I don't want to sound, again, hierarchical here, but probably one of the most accomplished or elite levels of position in the industry because you can't take an exam, you don't yeah, buy your way in, you are voted in by the uh, master trainers that have been in the game for a long time that look at you, and it's a combination of A, do you have a highly developed skill set? Can we throw you into the lion's den uh, and you end up, you know, you know patting them on the head and you know, cleaning their teeth, mm -hmm. right? Uh, can, you, you know, can we throw you into a place? If somebody walks up and says, I'm suicidal, can you handle it? If the uncertainty happens, can you handle it? If Tony doesn't show up, can you get on stage and handle it? Uh, so there's the skill set. But then there's the authenticity aspect. Are you doing it for why? Are you doing it because you want to be a trainer? Are you doing it because of the ego? Are you doing it to validate yourself? What patterns are running? And that's the most important part. Anyone can learn skills. Sure. And so, yeah, it took me, I was in the Slow Learners Club. I, 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 was, I spent three <laughs> years of, of trying to become a trainer. And that's okay, right? You needed that time. Oh, 100%. Yeah. But the, the, they call it time in the saddle. <laughs> but the distinction here is, is critical. When the, the symbology you know, back then was you get a jacket, a trainer jacket with your name on, and it's, it's quite a, uh, a presentation ceremony. It's quite, you know, it's one of the magic moments of my life, obviously. It's, it meant a huge amount because there'd been people trying for 10 years, and they'd never be a trainer, still not. They're running the same pants. Yeah, so I was on his leadership team for three years, and they select out of the pool of maybe three, 400 leaders globally every year. Back then, they'd probably choose two or three to step up to become trainers, and it was a real honor. Sure. But this is the defining point I really want to make that I think will serve the listeners because again, I don't want to make this too much about me. I, uh, I got my jacket, which was once I was promoted. But I didn't become a trainer by getting a jacket. They gave me a jacket when they knew I was a trainer. Now, how does that translate into what the game most people are playing when it comes to money? You will attract, you, know, you will become wealthy, right? Or you will attract money when you become wealthy. You won't become wealthy by going to get money. Yeah. Right? And most people are running around trying to, be, in that environment, trying to be a trainer. By the very definition of trying to be a trainer, what does it mean? You're not one, so you're never gonna get a jacket. You're trying to prove yourself, well no. The second I let go of that, the second I just showed up and said, I don't need a jacket to define who I am. Yeah. What, what game am I playing here? Well, that's when all the master trainers got together and says, he's ready. Okay. Yeah. That's great. When you don't need money to validate the fact that you, you know, are good enough, mm -hmm. when you don't need the car, the girl, uh, the job description, the partner, whatever it is, is when they show up. Yeah. Because now you don't need it, you're free to choose it. And again, I get chills because what I think about when you just said that is I'm picturing you in the prison. That 
it didn't matter what you were wearing. It didn't matter where you were. You are you. Mm -hmm. Your message is your message. So if you could do that there, you're set to be anywhere. So I, I could see how that training really yeah. set you up for not only this, but for life. And to be fair, I had it easy. I mean, you know, I guess some people it would be their worst nightmare being thrown into you know, a prison break kind of place. I, I get that. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, you know, I'm trained in handling uncertainty. I'm trained in helping people. I've mm -hmm. got a skill set that allowed me to navigate that better than most people, and I'm right. grateful for that. But I, I, got, I got an easy-ish test because it suited my skill set. But some people's graduation event, I mean, it's, for some, it is a physical disability or a stage four diagnosis, mm. or it's their best friend dies in their arms, or it's their soulmate leaves them, or it's their you know, kid is on drugs, or whatever it may be. They, we all have our graduation events. Now, I'm very blessed that I got one that, in all fairness, fitted my skill set pretty well, and I was able to navigate that. So you know, it's, I'm sure, as I said, the Olympics is every four years. <laughs> right. You know, it doesn't end. Yeah. So, yeah, my next one, I'm, I'm hoping I, I get to do the same kind of level and, uh, and see what goes because, you know, we're in the gym. Yeah, love it. Uh, you've said you need people to mop up your mess. Um, <laughs> That's when it comes down to detail. Right. So my question is, you know, really breaking it down, is it better f uh, for someone to focus on their strengths rather than trying to overcome or improve their weaknesses? Great question, and uh, I'll answer it this way. If you have a weakness that can be remedied that is affecting you, then go sort it out. For example, like if, you, if you don't read very well and reading's important to you, mm -hmm. it's not something you want to delegate out really well. You want to be able to build that. But when we talk about natural predispositions, I am naturally a visionary person, big picture guy. I'm the kind of idiot that doesn't do detail and leaves his wallet on a plane. <laughs> right. I am not into trying to grow my weaknesses to have some sort of level of balance. No. Yeah, this is, if you are phenomenal at javelin, stop trying to get better at the long jump. Pick your strength. Go shine and excel. If it feels right and that's why you're here, boom. Yeah, if you are incredible at the guitar, why would you sit for piano lessons? Go create music and magic with a guitar. Go make the, you know, the strings sing and dance. Yeah. Go move people through the music who you express on a guitar rather than play chopsticks for six months on a piano because it doesn't fit your game. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. So, yes, if it's, if it's a skill that you need to help navigate life, a different kind of game, you know, put the time in. Now, if you don't drive very well and you're prone to accidents in the car, then you know, learn to get better at driving. Right. That's a different sure. skill. Yeah. But if well my, said. My, yeah. my strength well is not detail, mm -hmm. so I surround myself with highly good detailed people. You currently reading any new books hmm. that you could share? <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm always, you know, always reading something. I mean, my, I, I tend to reread a lot rather mm -hmm. than go for too much new stuff, and I'll be honest vast majority of stuff written these days is some rehashed version of something else that somebody's put in their own spin or interpretation through. Yeah. Virtually everything in personal growth or development these days, you know, and for the last God knows how many decades, is a rehashed version of Think and Grow Rich yep. with a, a different spin on it sure. through somebody's own story. Sure. Nothing wrong with that, sure. but there's very little originality that's coming out. Uh, the next book I'm going to be writing is going to be a game changer because there's nothing else like it right now that I really think that the world needs to hear and that's all uh, going to give people a context for understanding adversity in a very different way. But uh, for me, I tend to reread more than read right now. Okay. 
because as we evolve, it's like a new book. And if I was to give a, again, recommendations to people, we've mentioned my big toe. Mm -hmm. That's a little heavy for a lot of people because it's, it's a little science-based, even though Tom does a masterful job of keeping it real. And if you really want to know Tom's philosophy, Tom Campbell, then most of his stuff's on YouTube and it's a lot easier for people to get okay. into. Yeah, he's got some Calgary lectures that introduce the My Big Toe Theory. Go there, you'll get blown away. If it doesn't resonate, it saves you reading a 700-page book. Tom Campbell. Tom Campbell, uh, amazing guy. Yeah, so um, one book I, I would recommend to people if they're ready for it is Transurfing Reality by Vadim Zeeland. Offers an incredible framework for learning how to navigate and manifest the metaphysical. Okay. That is a, a game changer for a lot of people. It used to be a series of five books. I have all five books. But then he re-amalgamated into one book in English. And it's, it's, it's sublime. It really, really is. It's, it's a, again, 700-pager. It takes some time to get through. It's worth the time. Okay. Uh, I read a lot of Hawkins. In fact, if there's one book, uh, the trilogy that he first put together started with Power versus Force. And if you've not read Power versus Force, it has to go on your list. It's non-negotiable if you're into personal growth. Okay. Don't ask questions. Buy it, download it, read it. Great. And yeah, did I mention that you should read Power versus Force? Yes. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and that is, and if you don't resonate with it at this level, it's okay. Mm, first time I picked up that book, I couldn't get into it. Ten years later, it changed my life. But. The second book he wrote was called The Eye of the Eyes, in like the eye of the hurricane, like mm -hmm. EYE, mm -hmm. of the eye, yeah, the center of you, the mm. eye of the eye. If you are looking to reconcile some of the information I gave at the beginning or close to the beginning of this interview around religion and spirituality and how religion is the institutional consequence of spiritual truth, then The Eye of the Eye is a sublime book to help navigate that philosophy and awareness. It is just okay. truth at a level of resonance that your cells will validate, not your intellect. And uh, I actually helped somebody get off heroin with that book in, in prison wow. because they, they, they were struggling for meaning. You know, why am I here? One of the other things I wrote while I was there is a, a poem called God, Why Am I Here? Mm. Uh, which helped people navigate you know, a higher level of context for their journey in prison being more part, part of the gym. But The Eye of the Eye, that was the second book in the trilogy for Hawkins, is... It is stunning. It's just, yeah, and again, it's not something you want to power through on your to-do list. This is something that moves you emotionally okay. in your soul. And the third book, which is called I, Reality and Subjectivity, is just, yeah, don't, don't go into that faint-heartedly unless you're a seriously committed spiritual student because okay. it's, it's too heavy, too deep, too much. It's like trying to read Hollis when you're 10 years old. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so yeah, I, I still go over that, and I'm like, wow, why didn't I read that the first time, I or the tenth time I, I went through? And I'm still on like you know the same paragraph here, you know, 14 <laughs> right. times. But that, that's Hawkins, you know, yeah, for you. Okay. Um, so yeah, I reread more Great. than I, I knew read. That's very rare. A book will catch my eye at the moment that um, that, that sort of calls to me, and I, I go far more off here than I sure. do anywhere else. And you mentioned uh, you are writing a new book. Any plans on timing? How does that work for your process? Well, I'm moving soon to the Canary Islands. I'm very excited really? about that. I can't Great. do another winter in England. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, the, our national color is gray. <laughs> and yeah, people are familiar with the British flag, the Union Jack, you know, the red, white, and blue. It's not actually the, the, uh, the British flag. The British flag is actually a piece of you know, flag-shaped gray, damp cloth okay. that's soaking wet and uh, never dries out. Uh, and I'm not being fair. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm you know, being facetious, but 
yeah, I can't do another winter. I'm a sunshine guy. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm heading out there soon. Excited. Uh, that's probably where I'll be doing most of my writing. Okay. Uh, my focus at the moment really is to shift my work to a different level of audience. I've got the Sage Business School, the last ever Sage Business School happening this year. And that's going to be in Krakow, the historical city of Krakow in Poland yes. in September. Wow. We're going to be putting tickets on sale soon. And I'm very excited about that. But it'll be the last one. Okay. My passion Why? isn't teaching business anymore. Okay. My passion is teaching the kind of thing you read in the inside track. Okay. That changes lives. Business you can learn in your sleep. Yes. I mean, while we're here, the 10X conference is going on with Grant Cardone. You want to learn business strategies? Yeah, you can learn them anywhere. Sure. Siri will teach you business and marketing these days. Yeah. That doesn't change your life. What changes people's lives in the Sage Business School is the first day where we don't talk business. Mm -hmm. We undo all of the limiting patterns, beliefs, behaviors, identity issues that, you know, are the reason why you think you want to earn more money in business. I've yeah. heard you talk about that's so important. Yeah. Yeah, we solve that, and then I can then. teach you how to make money in your sleep. Right. But uh, but you're moving on. Yeah, I'm now putting my uh, a new program together, which is aimed at high-level CEOs, entrepreneurs, business professionals, senior execs that are burnt out, stressed out, borderline depressed, staring at the ceiling three o'clock in the morning, can't shut their mind off on vacation, uh, wondering what all the game is about, and teaching them how to get to a place of fulfillment in like six, seven weeks that changes everything mm. because most people spend their life chasing success and never realize that there's a big difference between chasing success and chasing fulfillment mm. and the conversation tends to be they don't have this but this is the pattern that tends to run see, see how this resonates in, in your experience of people in corporate America sure right uh, as a senior exec VP you know C-level you know CEO whatever entrepreneur I'm gonna commit the next 10 15 maybe 20 years of my life working my ass off basically to you know, ruin my relationship, to sacrifice my health, to distance myself from my kids and not watch them grow up, so that at the end of that rainbow, I will make enough money to be able to pay for my divorce, to hire a decent personal trainer to get my health back, and buy my kids loads of shit so they love me again. So true. 99%. Is, is that not, right? and they wow. get to the top of what they thought was success mountain, and they want to jump off because sure. it ain't what they th were sold on. Yeah. So, so how do you become mm -hmm. the person you think you'll be then mm -hmm. today? Now. Yeah, you know? love it. And that's what I'm—that's my Great. next area of passion to be able to go teach. How did that come to you? I, I'm just curious. I, I'd like to influence influencers, and I see so many people working so hard. They've yes. got the discipline. They're making the sacrifices. They're getting up at two in the morning, yeah. only to die either retire early because they don't have, you know, the the health. Yeah. And or get say get to the top of success mountain want to jump off. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I remember there was a guy I was working with. Uh, spent several years working his business in South Africa, managed to exit and sold it for thirty million dollars. Yeah, and he wanted to, you know, finally made it, retired with his wife, everything. And the day he sold the business, his wife filed for divorce. Mm. Why? He's been emotionally unavailable for the last ten years, so she's fallen in love with a pool boy, and now she's got a fifteen million dollar payday to go enjoy it with. Yeah. So what's he doing? Yeah, he's now doing a bottle of Jack Daniels a night and 20 grand a night in the casino. See, at that level, I'm the guy to call. Yeah. You know, billionaire owns a dozen well-known, sorry, hundreds of well-known franchises. Um, won't uh, say what they are, but you know, amazing guy, top of his game, massive lifestyle. Lost his wife to a six-month aggressive battle to cancer very soon. Mm. Doesn't want to get out of bed can't manage, his business is falling apart, staff lives are suffering, got lost the will to enjoy life. I'm the guy to call got it. at that point. So you know, I've got a skill set there that's able sure. to get these people to re 
you know, connect the joy, the fulfillment, to transcend that level of, of adversity in a way that you know, is, is different to the average coach. And what I love about this is you take a guy like that, who's now in bed, you get him out of bed, he is going to impact oh, so many lives. That's why I'm focusing mm. now, because the Sage Business School dealt with a lot of people that wanted to become entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs, you know, the people coming up that want to leave their job and, and go start something, and that's great, and I've got a ton of material on YouTube that can help those people. But I want to focus for the next 12 months or so on the, the people that are suffering in silence because they're the people that everybody looks at and thinks they've got their shit together. Yeah. Yeah, they drive the car they already drive, want to drive. That's not the issue. Right. They live in the house that they, they, they want to live in, but they're miserable as hell. Their blood pressure's through the roof. They're on antidepressants. Yeah, their kids don't talk to them. Yeah, they, you know, they lie next to their wife and they haven't got the energy for sex. Yeah, they, they feel the emotional distance. Yeah, how do you get somebody like that and turn their life around so that, bang, they're, they're enjoying the level of life that they feel they deserve with the effort they've put in? Sure. So that, that's my focus for the next 12 months, I think. Great. Great, Peter. The stress-proof professional. Love it. So, as you could see here, we are American Real, represented. I uh, would love your thoughts about America. Um, and... Not, not even necessarily politically speaking, because I know you don't watch the news anyway, but um, it can't help but, but hear some things. What do you think about America, and um, do you plan on doing any business here? Pretty open-ended question, to be fair. Um, I've always stated that I, I wouldn't live in America. Now, I lived in North America. I lived in Vancouver, B.C. for three yes. years, and that, which I really enjoyed. But I have a couple of issues with, with the U.S. in terms of the infrastructure that I wouldn't want to reside here for. That's nothing against the American people at all. But I'm not a fan of your media. I'm not a fan of your politics. I'm not a fan of your IRS and your tax. And as an entrepreneur, those three things are, are pretty big. Right? So, Huge. yeah, I just, yeah. Yep. Um, uh, but uh, in terms of, of the people, what I love about this country is its history in terms of it encourages people. The American dream was, listen, you've got a flag, you've got a piece of land, and everybody starts equal. So the entire spirit of entrepreneurship was fostered on the fact that, look, if you don't work, you don't get on. Right. Whereas in England, we had you know, far many more centuries of a feudal-based system, which means that if you were born entrepreneurial, and you had resources, and you had ta you know, resourcefulness, and you had talent, and you had desire, and you weren't in the lucky sperm gang, it didn't mean squat. You couldn't express that. You're a peasant, you're going to stay a peasant because you weren't the lord of the land. And you can be entrepreneurial all you like, but you're never going to own that house. Okay. Right. So in England, there's a lot of inbuilt in our DNA kind of resentment for success. In Australia, they call it tall poppy syndrome. Mm -hmm. right? And and I remember way back, and this is, this is a, a real big part of me wanting to leave England at a young age. I was 25. I just bought my first Ferrari, Testarossa, for cash. And I thought all my friends would be happy for me, learn a big lesson. Yeah, definitely not. And I was in, not far from here, I was actually in Tampa. Okay. And I had to drive to Orlando. And I, was, I pulled up Orlando, and I was so tired. I just, it was three in the morning, I just wanted, I was with my girl at the time, and I said, we just need a motel, just get a few hours sleep, and we're flying out the next day out of Orlando. And I pull up at this kind of weird part of town, didn't know where we were, it was dark, 3 a.m., and it was like kind of a Bates Motel, kind of flashing light, you know, dodgy part of town. Right. Don't want to find yourself in, but we were right. too tired. And I pull in, and in front of me, there's another Ferrari Testarossa. I'm like, oh, and I'm in this like, little rental car. 
And I get out and I walk into where you know the booth is to, to sign in. And there's a guy there with a you know hi, I've got a Ferrari jacket on. And I said, excuse me. He looks at me and says, uh, is that your Tessie outside? He says, yeah. I said, are you parking it here tonight? He's going, yeah, why? I says, well, I, I own the same car. I says, but in England, I, I can't park that in a place like this. You know? I'd come back, there'd be no wheels. You know, I, you know, I have to sit in the window of a restaurant so I could watch it. I factor a, a new uh, a respray into my cash flow every six to eight weeks because you know, people put a key down it. And, you know, and I reconcile that. I'd much rather own a nice car that gets scratched than not own one and walk around scratching it. <laughs> right. you know, pick one. Right. But I said, do you not have any, you're not worried about it being here tonight? And when he turned around to me, changed everything and really sums up my, my admiration for the American people. He turned and says, oh, God, no. He says, I have way more people that ask me how I got it than would ever want to put a key down. And I'm like, wow, that was the contrast frame that showed me the difference between the American mentality towards success and the English mentality towards success. Yeah. And I, you know, I love America for that. I, I really, really do. But when it comes to your, your media, give me a freaking break. It's a circus. It's right? When it comes to your politics, I don't do politics. I didn't, I didn't even, I, I, I couldn't even tell you if, you know, Trump's still present because I don't know. I don't watch. I don't. I, I do not do news. Period. If something's important, it'll find me. But no, I don't do politics and I don't talk about it. Um, uh, and the tax situation here, yeah, it's I, awful. I'm, yeah, forget it. Yep. The, the IRS have way too much power to ruin people's lives on their own agenda mm -hmm. and follow you guys around the world no matter where you try to escape to. <laughs> right. So true. Yeah. As living in Dubai as an English person, I don't pay tax. Yeah. Right? Whereas an American person living in Dubai, you still pay tax. Right. They'll yeah. find you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming here for the IRS. I'm sorry. So look, what we're trying to do here with, with our show is um, you know, bring as much val value uh, to people's lives, to raise global consciousness, as, as, as you talk about. And um, as we wind down here, I would just love to know, what advice would you have for me and American Real to serve as many people as we can? Remember I said that yeah, it all starts with us. Everything's about the mirror. We live our life through our, or we express our lives through our intentions. Intention precedes behavior. Now, if you have your intention to serve as many people as possible, you can expect the friendly universe to line up and give you a hand. The second you start switching that to, how do I get more subscribers because it validates me as a host, because it means that people will take my show seriously, because of all of that stuff that's really insecurity, fear-based at, at the unconscious level, you know, levels when you peel back the onion, that's when the universe will start slowing down to help because it'll say, hey, listen, he, you know, sometimes people need to trip over and hit their head on the pavement in order to learn how to tie their shoelaces. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the intent to serve, Tony gives a very powerful quote. He says, power moves to those in direct proportion to their willingness to serve. I firmly believe that because it's shown up at every level. There's a reason that I didn't get beat up in prison. There's a reason I didn't sure. suffer violence. There's a reason that, you know, when I, I actually did end up breaking a bone in there, um, and uh, which was my own silly fault, I tripped over a step and, and snapped the uh, metatarsal bone in my foot. And I, that night, I couldn't even walk down the landing to get my meal. Uh, no painkillers, no crutches, no ice, Oof. no, yeah, I mean, no x-ray, right? And uh, it took two months to get the x-ray. The x-ray is actually in the book at the back after two months of begging, and they wouldn't actually give me an x-ray. Anyway. So you just had story. to live with the pain. Yeah. yeah. And that's fine. I like to know what's going on. Yeah. But that night, a bunch of the other prisoners who found out came, uh, 
went out, they got my meal for me, they brought it up to my cell. One bought a mop bucket and they got, they'd smuggled in some like essential oils that they got mm -hmm. and they put some warm stuff in a mop bucket and put my foot in. And it was the outpouring of concern in a place that was so bereft of compassion was just touching, but a magic moment, you yeah, know, right yeah, on my absolutely. list. So yeah, but that it was based on what I believe was my intent to serve going in, not my intent to survive, right. not my intent to come out with a best-selling book, not my intent to care about what other people thought, but my intent to go in and, and hopefully bring a, a light into a place that had such darkness that I could leave a thumbprint of benefit on there, maybe, to help people that I'd never normally get the chance or the privilege to help. And that's why the universe conspired to, to bring out all of this stuff that's happened, from books to movies to legacy. So I'm now godfather to one of the prison sons. I saw that. That's wonderful. You know? And, 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 and all of that. So yeah, your intent to serve the people through American Real is the most fundamental you know, state that you want to cultivate. Everything else will be brought to you. Just stay there. Yeah. How do I serve these people? You're asking the right question. How do I get my ego out of the way and bring the best out of my guests? Mm -hmm. uh, how do I you know, commit, like you did, you committed to getting on a plane to come and meet me today. I, that's, I've never had that from a podcast host before. Right? And it's no you know, uh, wonder that you know, the lives that you're touching through you know, the medium that you're putting on is having the effect it is. You know, I, I so honor that. You know, there's a few other real podcast hosts could probably learn something from that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, Peter, thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for this interview. This has been everything I expected and manifested, to be honest with you. Uh, it's been wonderful, really. It's been wonderful. But one last question before I let you go, and I ask every guest this. Sure. What do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> well, I'm... Again, if, if I'm lucky enough to choose the words out of my mouth... Uh, in my last breath, it would definitely be, you know, wow, that was a movie, you know, that I'd pay to watch again. And that doesn't mean being perfect. That doesn't mean that I touched so many lives. I, I'm, I'm not into a legacy at that. Point. Your legacy is who you are going through the movie. Did I learn? Did I increase my acting ability so next time I come back for a new script, and and we don't remember the previous scripts because that would confuse us. But you know, next time I come back, can I bring some of that extra acting ability with me to hopefully serve better in a movie as well? To hopefully make more choices based on love than fear. And as a result of me showing up the best, if I'm lucky enough to be able to affect some of the lives of the people that you know, came into some of the scenes of my movie so that they can be more of the star of their own, then wow, I'm, I'm touched. I love it. Peter Sage, welcome to the American Real family. Thank you so much. Pleasure's mine. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. At American Real, we're on a mission to help as many people around the world fulfill their dreams and obtain their goals. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, Check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, 
Maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast. Contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. And speaking of podcasting, our next course will be starting soon. So if you're interested in launching your own podcast, join me and podcast your passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting, where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.